0: Hello and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested. So please, consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen and whoever else is listening, welcome back to part two of Hopeless to Dopeless. This is my interview with Marshall Roberts. and Welcome back, Marshall. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh last where we ended was uh I believe you had uh your family and your friends were kind of done with your shenanigans for lack of a better term and they were uh they were kind of shutting you out and you said something to the effect of yeah so what now I'm free and I don't have to answer to anybody or something like that is that
1: Yeah is that, right? is that where we were? Yeah, I uh I guess I felt I'd secured my independence through through really horrible means to be honest with you I it was it was there was guilt present yes but it was also invigorating um to not have anybody to really answer to to not have any uh, ownership over relationships anymore it creates this independent feeling that you just really can't you really can't match and I felt that I felt that really strongly and it I guess the word is empowered, usually use that in a positive way, but I felt empowered and my addiction became empowered. Things got really difficult after that. Uh, so we were up in Salt Lake, I just committed my first burglaries. Um, I ended up doing the time for that, spent some time in Salt Lake County Jail, when they re- and then they released me uh, on the pretrial release, that's what we talked about last week but i still had more jail time to do i thought i had had enough of that place and i guess i was wrong i ended up getting involved with a pretty pretty serious check forgery ring and i did some jail time for that as well but i'm really not i'm rather really not going to go into that right now the biggest thing i want to talk about is what led me to prison After everything was said and done, I had screwed up my entire life. I had sold everything that I owned. I sold my my car, my backpacking gear, my computer, my DVDs, my, I mean, everything that you can possibly imagine that you would have in your life, I sold. I sold it, I pawned it, I traded it, I, I did everything I could to get money. And it didn't last, obviously. We don't have infinite material goods. And when I ran out of stuff to steal or to sell, I started taking things from my fiance. I took her DVDs, and I took her computer, and I took her bike, and I just sold everything
0: that we had in our apartment that we had built together. And did did she know your your level of involvement with with the heroin, or did she know it all at that point? Maybe we talked about it. I don't remember.
1: She uh, she knew. She was she was on board. Uh, we did talk about that a little bit. Um, we discussed the the deceptions, the level of dedication to the deceptions that I exhibited uh, in my in my our relationship i would I would lie to her so many times and she would try to catch me, and she wouldn't try to catch me to like shame me or to um, make me feel horrible. She would try to catch me because. Those were the times that she felt in her mind that by catching me she could then turn it into a okay, so I caught you, let's turn this into the actual time that we we kick this thing in the butt um, so yeah she was she was she knew she knew how bad it was, but she had her life she had her job, she worked at the University of Utah and it was a very prestigious job and it it, it consumed her days and she had no choice. she had no choice but to leave me alone during the day and she knew. And I'm sure it caused her so much grief. All day long at work. The hours must have dragged by. She understood. But she had no choice. She had she had to keep working on her life. So. We ran out of stuff to sell. We ran out of things to sell. And there was nothing left in the house. I mean, it got to the point where we were just... It was empty, it was like a shell And she was in shock She would come home And she would notice the things missing And in the beginning she said things about it Where, where are those DVDs I've had those since I, was, since I was a teenager You know, where is my bike And you'd come up, I'd come up with stories Like, oh, somebody must have stole your bike Right Which was true <laughs> Yeah, just, just somebody did steal the it bike <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the man that you love and you live with so I, I just I started coming up with alternative ways to get money I would steal from neighbors I would steal from stores and I would <laughs> I'd steal the shirt off your back if I thought it would get me if if I thought it would get me heroin I'd steal the shirt off your back and that wasn't very consistent money so there were times that I would go down to the homeless shelter and I had no money. I had no hope of getting money, no ideas that day. And like I said, in the last interview, we had their heroin addicts are so industrious. They can get together so much money in, in the period of the period of a day Uh, if they just put that towards like a healthy lifestyle,
0: (laughs) they would be brilliant. We'd be be entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, filthy rich.
1: (laughs) And, uh, so I ended up down at the shelter no money no real idea of how to get money that day I was just, I was tired I didn't, you know, it takes a lot of energy to live that lifestyle to to come up with, you know Ocean's Eleven level uh, cons and, and, you know, burglaries there's, it's energy and it's just constant, constant energy expenditures and some days you just get up and there's just nothing there's nothing left in the tank and you're sick and you don't have heroin and you just you walk around like a zombie until something turns up or an idea turns up or you get motivation again or the sickness becomes so bad that you just decide to do something that you will never forgive yourself for so i wandered down to the homeless shelter on a particular day such as that and i ran into this woman she saw that i was sick and she called me over and she said hey come over here i don't have much and it's not heroin, but you can take this, it'll help you feel better for a little while. And it was, it was crack cocaine. And I had done crack a few times and it's pretty intense, but it's it's not my drug of choice. But at that point when you're sick, you'll do anything. So we took a couple of hits off of crack and crack is a stimulant, it makes you chatty. And I started chatting with this woman and she reveals to me, candidly, that she had just gotten out of jail for robbing a bank and I remember thinking robbing a bank what that's the kind of stuff that, that you know that's up there with murder and, and kidnapping you know there's, there's, those are the big crimes and she tells me yeah it wasn't that big of a deal I did six months in county jail for robbing a bank <laughs> when you've done jail time and you contrast that with how much money you got for the crimes that you did. You, ra- you start to rationale, okay, I could do four months jail time if I could get this much money. Or if I go rob this bank and you think just triple dollar bill signs in your head. If I could get away with six months in jail, that would be worth it because I'd get weeks and weeks and weeks of heroin. And so, the discussion began, would you be willing to help me commit a robbery?
0: I need money. She was asking you, or you were asking her if she would help you? I asked her. Okay. Because she was an expert.
1: She was an expert. (laughs) She was the street version of an expert. And, And the wheels, the second she said that, six months bank robbery, the wheels in my head started turning that is so much money six months is not a big deal and I asked her will you help me get the confidence or or, you know show me what to do Uh, you know I don't know how to rob a bank will you be be my coach yeah my (laughs) bank robbery coach you know I think there's a class for that or a YouTube channel yeah something (laughs) so she said I'm not willing to, to rob a bank but I will help you rob anywhere else
0: like a store like yeah like
1: a store we'd actually picked out a convenience store up and this is the epitome of stupidity uh it was a convenience store not two blocks away from where i was living and i picked it because i knew the store and it was just a small mom and pop convenience store it wasn't one of the you know brand name stores like chevron or maverick and we got up there the place was closed there happened to be another place close by, a small uh, coffee shop. And I had been in that coffee. I actually had applied for a job at that coffee shop. And that's another level of stupidity. Uh, but I thought, you know, there's only one employee in there. They probably got a couple hundred bucks in the till. That's a lot of heroin for, for today. That's That's enough for today or tomorrow. And so we robbed this coffee shop. And I'll be honest with you, I had the, uh, I had the the deer in the headlights, condition, where I didn't want to do anything because I was so absolutely scared out of my mind. I'm committing a robbery, and not only that, but it was a constructive armed
0: robbery. So is, what's the fear? Is it, that you get caught, or that, you just can't believe you're doing something so bold? It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of both of those actually
1: yeah i don't think anybody can commit an evil act and not let it affect them i really don't i think that even people that you would seem evil to the core except maybe psychopaths it takes something from you it corrupts a part of you and you feel that happening and i don't care how hard you think you are i don't care how much you've done i don't care how many places you've robbed it affects you it hurts your soul and it was hurting mine and I felt it and I was I was shaking like a leaf. I was shaking so bad. And I said, You gotta do this. I can't I can't I'll go in there with you, but I can't do this. I don't we shouldn't we shouldn't do this. This is stupid. And she's like, No, no, we walked all the way up here, we're gonna do this. You know, we'll get you feeling better. We'll go in there, I'll take care of it, and, and then we'll go get some we'll go get you some heroin. And so she grabbed She grabbed a bundle of uh, sticks off the ground, wrapped them up in a sheet we found on the ground, and we rolled in there, and she laid that on the counter and made it out to be constructively a weapon. And she told the, the till lady on a note, I have a gun. Give me everything in the till, or I will shoot you. And I stood off to the side while it was happening, and it was like... It was like watching a really, really bad movie. Not bad as in scary, but like poorly financed, bad stunts. Bad acting? Bad acting, bad movie. But that, that out, of, out of your body view of that experience was what I was experiencing. I, it wasn't me, it was, it was unreal. I was watching the back of my head. And this is happening and I'm there. And then I see the money exchange hands, and the only thing that's in my mind at that point is, here comes the heroin, we did it. And that was my first robbery. I went on the run, obviously the cops are hip to this. And it took maybe three days for it to come to light in a way that my fiance knew beyond a reason of a doubt that I had committed that robbery. And during those three days, I used heroin every single day and made life out to be like everything was going to be okay. We're going to go to rehab. We're going to get this figured out. Everything's going to be okay. Let's watch a movie. Let's Let's go to the park, everything's going to be okay You were because, trying to reassure her? Yeah, well I was trying to play it off like everything was okay uh, oh, so she, she didn't know she that didn't I'd it. robbed uh, okay. <clears throat> It okay. took three days for that to happen And during that three days I did nothing but lie to her And just act like everything was fine Like like it hadn't happened And that's because I had the heroin I had got We had gotten enough from that robbery That I had enough heroin to get through the next couple of days And everything was going to be alright maybe the cops are stupid maybe they can't figure out who I am maybe the security cameras weren't really running and then I saw the news and she saw the news and I ran I left I left her, I left our apartment I was all over the news, the cops were pursuing this very seriously as they should And I ran. And I remember... I remember thinking... Once the heroin ran out and I'm on the run and the cops are looking for me... Well, it's over. I did it. I finally did the unforgivable. I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life. I had no idea what kind of prison term robberies carried. But I just was sure I was going to go to prison for the rest of my life. And I decided... I was going to rob a bank to get enough money to buy enough heroin to end my life and I had this I remember when I made the decision this just sense of calm washed over me there's an end I can see the end and I have the strength to 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 use the means to achieve the end. All I have to do is rob one bank and it doesn't matter if they know who I am. It doesn't matter if they would have caught me because I'll be dead. I didn't go into that bank with a disguise. I didn't go into that bank with any like plans for for evasion or going on the run for months, traveling to Mexico. I had nothing. I went into that bank because however much money they were going to give me, was sufficient to kill myself. So you were buying
0: your your travel ticket. Yes, your plane ticket to I was buying to the my, other side, my
1: ticket to ride. <clears throat> okay. And me went to work. I snuck back into our apartment. I found uh, a pad of paper and a pen. I got a change of my old clothes and I grabbed my bike. And I wrote the note, maybe four different times. I drafted the note four times, and each time I read the note, and I started crying, and I thought I can't go through with this. And so I, I, would already ruined the note. I, it was, it was stupid and, and exaggerated and movie. It was, it was cinematic and I crumpled it up and I tried again and I sat down and I said it's you can do this man because not only are you gonna get enough drugs to 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 be high for a little while but then after that you're gonna kill yourself and everything's gonna be over so I wrote it again and I came to the same conclusion again and at the time I didn't really appreciate what was happening but over the years I've started to understand that the last shred of me the last piece of my soul that had not been destroyed was fighting to survive. And it did not want me to commit those bank robberies. And it did not want to die. I walked down the street about two blocks to the bank that I had picked out to rob. It was a small little one-branch mom-and-pop bank. And I remember the process of trying to build up the courage to go in there. I stood across the street and I smoked a cigarette and I stared at the bank door. And I said, I'll wait till there's nobody in the bank. Well, the last client came out and I smoked another cigarette and said, I'll wait till there's nobody here for five minutes just to make sure... You know, there's nobody coming. Nobody came for five minutes. I smoked another cigarette, and I stared at the door, and I said, maybe we'll wait 10 or 15 minutes just to make sure it's a slow point. And it just kept going on and on and on. And finally, I just... I turned and walked away. I started walking up the street, and I said, this is so stupid. What am I doing? I'll face heroin withdrawals. I'll face all of my current crimes but I cannot rob this bank like are you freaking kidding me man bank robbery I got about halfway up the street and I puked all over the sidewalk I was sick I was I was so so sick the withdrawals were kicking in overtime and at that minute that tiny that tiny shred of my soul and sanity that had caused me to question and to walk away were completely overruled by by the addicted marshal. It was like it was like they slaughtered the pilot and they took the seat and they just drove that plane, man. And we went right back to the bank. I walked up to that door, I put my hand on the door, and there was a fragment of a second, the last piece of me that was that was kicking and trying and screaming and saying, You can't do this and then it was just smothered by the heroin addiction. And I walked into that bank and I gave that note to that teller.
0: It's almost like it gave you confidence. The sickness gave you confidence to, or at least physical confidence.
1: It gave me an override. It overrode everything else. I don't know if you could call that confidence, but it was enough. It was all over in in 10 seconds. I gave her that note and I said, I'd like to make a withdrawal. And she had the biggest, most beautiful smile on her face. And she read the note and her face just night and day. It just flipped to pure terror. And I'll never forget that. And I'll never forgive that. and you've never seen somebody move so fast. 10 seconds in and out of that bank and it was over. And I ran up the street and I got my bike and I changed my clothes and I ran downtown. I heard the sirens the whole way on my bike and I got downtown and I bought a ridiculous amount of heroin. (laughs) And I got a buddy, I gave him some money and I said, hey, let me use your ID, Let's let's go party it up at a hotel for a couple of weeks and he's like yeah sure that's great and I said just so you know I'm on the run right now so we can't you know we got to be really smooth about this and we did we partied it up for for a while and, and we used drugs every day and it was just this this miasma of, of unconscious life it was just it was disgusting and it was fun and it felt good and it was horrible and I was watching the news the entire time and I've got my name everywhere, they're handing out flyers with my picture on it at the homeless shelter where I buy drugs, they're patrolling the areas that I used to live, they are harassing my fiance, they are breaking into her apartment, they are ransacking the place looking for me, and I see all of this on the news, and I see my family calling in and telling the detectives, this is our son help him, please get him some help well the time came money's out we've got that big that just last piece that last chunk of heroin and I just walked away from the hotel room My friend wasn't there, he was coming back in a little while, and I just walked away. I left all my stuff, and I just walked away. And through the, it's a long story that, I'm not gonna tell the whole thing, but the point is here, I was walking down the street in Salt Lake City, looking for a place to to kill myself, basically, and I got mugged. (laughs) I got mugged right there in the street, and I got beat up, and I, I jumped in the window to try to get my stuff back, and, and they kicked me out of the car. And the back tire rolled over my foot, shattered it. Bones were sticking out, and uh, now I have nothing. I can't even kill myself. I guess I could do, go jump off a building, but there's no way I was doing that.
0: Couldn't climb up the stairs with a broken foot. <laughs> <clears throat> I guess you got to see the light in it now. But
1: <coughs> excuse me. Well, I had to rob another bank. That's all there was to it. We're in this this deep now, and we are going out with a bang. Doesn't matter how many banks it takes. It's a means to an end, and I'm gonna end. And so I went and I robbed my second bank. And this time, there was no hesitation. There was no conflict. There was none of that it was cold it was unconscionable it was calculated and I filled out the note and I put like a taunting signature on the back and I rolled into that bank with confidence and I passed that note across and I and I took their money too and I went to Salt Lake with the money and I bought new clothes and I got a new haircut and I bought stuff that I didn't need and I I set aside a chunk of the cash for to kill myself I set aside $800 and in the world of drugs $800 of heroin is a lot of heroin no matter how much you use no matter who you are it's a lot of heroin for one person so I figured it would be enough. It would be more than enough. It was overkill. It'd kill a freaking elephant. And I went and I partied up at a hotel again. This time with a different friend. And and it was a week, I think, this time. At the end of that week, I grabbed my $800. And I went and I bought, I bought the $800 of heroin. And I had acquired from my time in the medical field this thing called a fast drip IV kit. You can't take $800 of heroin and put it in a diabetic syringe and shoot it up. (laughs) It's not gonna work. It just, it's physically impossible to do that. So I had thought this through and I had acquired this IV kit and it'll put anywhere between four and and 800 milliliters of saline solution with any drug solution included into your body in about five minutes. It's designed to get drugs into your body fast in an emergency. And I had one of these. And I had my heroin. And I left that hotel and I hiked up City Creek Canyon up above Salt Lake. And I hiked up there for maybe six hours. I just kept walking on that road and I just... To be honest with you, I couldn't even tell you what I was thinking about. It was like being a... A robot or a zombie there was no there was no thought, and I walked up and I just peeled off into the into the forest there, and I prepared the solution and I said a little ambiguous you know unaffiliated prayer to anybody and nobody i just I remember what I said. I said, God or whoever's out there or up there or below there.' I really messed this up. I messed this whole thing up and I'm sorry and I'm coming home. And I put all $800 of heroin into my body and I woke up three days later.
0: That's a miracle, I would think. It was a miracle.
1: I'd puked all over myself. My legs didn't work. My left eye was blind and it was sitting funny. Like, like. Like a lazy eye. Yeah, like a lazy eye. <clears throat> and I couldn't, I couldn't stand up. My legs were temporarily paralyzed. The, I mean, and there was, there was so much vomit and there was blood and it was. And you're
0: just off out in the woods. off. I'm off, off City Creek, oh, the oh, street there.
1: Way up in the woods, man not the street up in up city creek canyon okay nobody's going to find me and if they do it would have been much much late too late and i i just woke up and i looked at the sky and it was blue and and i lost it i cried harder than i've ever cried in my entire life like what did i do What have I done? It took me about six hours to get off that mountain. The legs started working again, and and I could start to see again after a, few, a little while and and i walked I walked down that canyon and it set in like like a firebrand. I have got to get this taken care of. I have got to man up, and I have got to turn myself in, and I have got to stay alive I've never been more terrified of dying in my life and I did not want to ever go through that again
0: it's an interesting position three days later or three days previous the determination to end it with no fear to, to now yeah.
1: I knew more than anything I've ever known that I did not want to die and that it was time. I walked down to Salt Lake, and I wasn't really sure how to go about turning myself in. That's the honest truth, I, I didn't know what that looked like. And uh, I just went to where I knew they were looking for me. I went to the homeless shelter, and I sat down, and it was it was about five seconds. After I sat down, I was looking at the sky and wondering how long it was gonna take them to come, and it wasn't even five seconds. They had my arm twisted up behind my back, and they put my face against that super hot police car hood, and it was over. They finally caught me. And I was so relieved. I was scared, I was so terrified, and I was so unsure of what the future was going to look like I did, I thought I was going to be in prison for the rest of my life serial bank robber, serial robber check forger, burglar, drug addict I was sure they were just going to shut the door lock it and throw away the key but all of that and I remember I leaned my head back against the police seat there in the car and I just let out a big long breath and I knew it's finally over All of that frantic lifestyle, it's finally over. And that...
0: Is how I got to prison. So how long... How long after that arrest... Were you then sentenced? Oh, it took... It took, I think,
1: three months... In county jail before I was actually sentenced and taken to prison. Um... Finally, finally got my lawyer, my my public defender, she was able to secure a compromise. They call it a deal to reduce some of my charges to make everything a little more manageable in return for me pleading guilty rather than taking it to trial. And to be honest with you, I didn't expect anything. I didn't expect any deals. I didn't expect any any love from the judge. I just figured whatever they're gonna give me, that's, that's my life now. And they came back and they offered me this deal and it was so much more reasonable than I thought it would be. I had three five to life sentences, aggravated robbery, that's five years to life in prison, making it 15 years to life in prison was what I was booked into county jail for. And then there were several other smaller charges, one to 15, and zero to fives. And they came back and they offered me the most amazing deal. They said, we're gonna drop those five to lifes down to one to fifteens, so one year to 15 years. We're gonna run all three of them concurrently, which makes them basically two years to 15 years rather than 3 to 30. And we want you to get help. We don't want to see you ruin... Your your whole life is ahead of you. And you're going to do some time. And we want you to take this deal because we want you to get help while you're there. And you're not going to rot away behind bars. You're going to get out of there eventually. And you will have had the opportunity to fix your life. And those are the words that the defender said to me. Those are the words that my my publicly appointed attorney said to me. And how old were you at this time? Twenty two or twenty 22, twenty two, twenty, twenty
0: three. So you're into this lifestyle six or seven years? Oh man. At that point, right? You started at fifteen, sixteen? Yeah. Okay. And out I went. I said, you
1: give me that fancy pen in your pocket there and I'll sign that deal right now. And the judge was on board and the judge said, you know, you've been in here a couple of times. I've been your judge every time. I've seen your record, I've seen your past, I've seen what your family has said about you. You've got to make this work or you're gonna die or spend the rest of your life in prison. So I got sentenced to prison. And that was scary. There are so many different r- myths and and ideas and stories about what prison is like, and a lot of them are true. <laughs> a lot of the worst ones are true. But when you're going to prison when you're young as a kid, as a kid you're tall, you're skinny, you're white. And you know nothing about prison life. And I just remember thinking, holy crap, I'd I'd almost rather stay in jail. (laughs) So they took me to Draper State Prison. And when you first get to Draper State Prison, the first thing they do is they take you to a unit called Uinta 5. This unit is 60 years old. It is where they used to keep the death row inmates. And it is literally the Monte Count of Monte Cristo dungeon. <laughs> it is literally the Count of Monte Cristo dungeon. There are rats, there are mice, there are no windows, just bars. And when that door slides shut for the first time in this ridiculously tiny cell, it sets in, I'm in prison. It slides shut and it rings when it shuts all the way and it's like a death knell the bell tolls and you are in prison and it's done and you you spend some time there and they do your reception and orientation and that takes three months and then they assign you to a housing unit and that can take time and the whole first three months that you're in prison they stick you in a cell you can't have books you can't get commissary you can't you have nothing, you get out of your cell one hour a day, to shower and to make a phone call and then you go right back to your cell and you go right back to a cell, which is a bathroom which is a kitchen, which is also a living room and a bedroom with another grown ass man and you share that tiny living space with this man, 23 hours out of the day 7 days a week for 3 months straight
0: so you better figure out how to get along, right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah you better figure it out quick (laughs) I just I remember the first meal they brought me in prison was it gave me panic and it gave me anxiety and it gave me regret I should not have turned myself in, or I should not have i should have cut a better deal or I should have taken it to trial. That food was so unbelievably terrible it was it was chilly, and that is a misnomer. It is not chilly it isn't it is just a hodgepodge of all these different. Beaks and talons and heart valves of several different animals, tufts of fur, <laughs> sinew. I mean, it is so god awful, and they expect you to eat that. And I'm looking at this, and that's when the regret set in. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, Over what the did, food? What did I do? I'm gonna have to eat this food for the next possibly 15 years to 30 years of my life. What did I do? Oh man and then and then you you go to sleep and you hear people either getting assaulted or raped or just having consensual prison sex and you hear that and you just hope to God that you're not next so that's one of the
0: stories that are true Oh, you've no idea. You're right. Yeah. Rape
1: and and assault and abuse and, and bullying, it's it's at unheard of levels. You're talking about individuals that literally exist on nothing but primal instinct. These are cavemen and they will take and they will rape and they will kill and they will steal because they survive. And they are everywhere. And I got lucky. I did. I was never, I was never raped. I was never pressed for sex. I was never, I was never in that kind of a situation with anybody. I got lucky. But I'm Charismatic, and and I listen, and I'm usually pretty passive when people start to get aggressive. Maybe I was just lucky; I could diffuse the situations, but it still gets to you. It's still a psychological weight. But I got right into their inpatient program. It's called Conquest, and in that, in those first two years, I was able to complete that program. I did so well there top marks for my therapists. Building director was so pleased with me. I was painting murals in the gym, in the dorms. I was teaching high school and literacy. I gra- I actually turned my GED into a high school diploma while I was there. When I graduated, I got to speak at the ceremony as the valedictorian and the student of the year, as well as a teacher that had all of his students graduating in that class. And I I have no idea what I did to impress this woman enough to do this, but the woman that I was working with in the education department went ahead and took it upon herself to get me a scholarship to the University of Utah for all that I had done. And she went through some challenges to get that scholarship because of all of my different crimes and some that I hadn't haven't really touched on in this session. Um, I was not allowed at the U, U of U campus I was banned from the UU campus post-college. I was not allowed to go there. And she was able to get me a scholarship there as well as they wanted me to go back there. We're impressed with what he's doing. We're so glad that he's rehabilitating his life. We will rescind the lifetime ban. We will allow him to go to school here and we will also give him a scholarship. It was amazing. It did so much for my self-esteem. It made me feel good about my progress. It was it was incredible. And as the years went by, the time started to speed up. In the beginning, it gets really, really, really difficult to deal with how slow the time goes. You spend nothing but I mean, you spend every hour of the day, it slips into your mind. Oh man, if I was out on the streets, this is what I'd be doing. Oh, I miss hanging out with this person or I miss seeing my family or I miss writing the tracks. That was random, but it hit me a lot. I, I missed writing the tracks. And uh, it just, time just goes by at a crawl. A day takes longer than a week, takes longer than a month. But then you get into your groove You start to adapt, you start to acclimatize, you start to understand how people work in prison and you just make your way. You just make your way. It wasn't easy and there were times that it got really, really, really difficult. I got in fights, I got beat up, I got extorted for money, and I got robbed, and it happens in prison. It happens, and the way that you re- respond to that is how they judge if they're going to keep pushing you. And so I ended up getting in more fights. And I'm not the greatest fighter in the world, to be honest with you. I actually can't stand the idea of fighting. I think it's. Stup-
0: I think it's pathetic. <clears throat>
1: stupid. Yeah, it's stupid. And, uh, but you, you, you have to take a stand in prison or they see that and they
0: watch constantly. Like looking for weakness. Oh man. So that's legit.
1: They have people in their gang units that are specifically set up to watch for fish is what a new prison inmate is called specifically to watch for a fish that is wealthy or at least has some money or has some things that they can take. And then they take a tiny bit from that person and see how they respond. Did they stand up for themselves? Did they go and try to click up with another another gang? Did they start riding in the white boy car? Did they start riding with the, the trece? If they do none of that, then they go in and they, they take that dude's stuff. And not only that, but they'll take his stuff and then they'll beat him up and then they will rape him and they will leave him in the cell. And that is that is a very common thing in prison. So yeah, I got in fights and I lost a lot of fights, <laughs> but you have to—you have to stand up for yourself, or they will take you.
0: That's that's no different on the outside, to some extent. You got to stand up for yourself, and because yeah. it's similar—if you know, it's similar if you're, show weakness, and people exploit that—in like a business setting or a work setting or sports, Mm-hmm. so that's. That's an interesting... Yeah,
1: it just wears a a nice mask out here in the real world. In prison, it's a mask covered in tattoos.
0: So, how many years were you in Utah State Prison? I did six
1: and two. All in all, my total time was eight years. It's a county jail and yeah. Utah State Prison. And I did most of it up here at Draper. And then, or no, excuse me. I did most of it down in Gunnison. And I did the first end of it up here at Draper. And the difference between the two prisons is pretty fascinating. Because in Draper, Draper used to be one of the top ten deadliest prisons in the United States. This was back in the 80s. It has come a long way, but it is still dangerous. And there are drugs and there are murders and stabbings and rapes and and it is just it's a they call it a party. Draper's a party. All the time it's a party and it's always popping. And you go down to Gunnison and Gunnison is like it's like manicured lawns and and it's it's a newer facility and all it's clean, it's clean as a whistle. And new paint and, and new additions, you know, with the buildings. And they've got college courses and they've got, uh, you know, U prep and and programming. It's a whole different game, but it's more dramatic and it's filled with sex offenders. <laughs> That's the truth. That's it's <laughs> it's, the, it's the irony of that. It's oh man, they say, you know, they're supposed to be like. to sex offender population well me and my friend actually went in I was working in education down there too 72% of the inmates in Gunnison State Prison are sex offenders and it's just like horrible crimes and you're just thinking wow bank robbery does not seem like such a big deal anymore (laughs) it's just like child's play (laughs) well it's They just two different class of crime. Anyways. We did a lot of good in prison. I did a lot of good, excuse me. And I did bad too. There were times that I crashed or I, I, I gave up on myself or I didn't wanna do it anymore. I never felt suicidal like I did when I was using heroin, but it got pretty close. There was some depression. There was some periods at the tail end after I got bad news that my board hearing wasn't gonna let me go home. And you just have to deal with it because the alternative is still dealing with it because you go to bed at night and you wake up the next day and it's still directly in front of you. You are still in prison and you still have to deal with this and you don't have a choice. And so I carried on.
0: So let me ask this. Heroin's addictive. I mean, it's obviously. So, how did you handle all of a sudden using heroin daily to not at all? Did you have like massive withdrawals and all the things that that I that I'm guessing are there? When you come off the streets, you go straight to
1: uh, straight to Salt Lake County Jail, and they just stick you in a cell in a unit called quarantine and they literally just leave you there to dry out. They feed you three times a day They and that's it. They don't even talk to you. And you're in a cell with another dude that's probably coming off of drugs and the whole place smells like death. Everybody's puking, everybody's shitting all over themselves and in their beds, all over their clothes and there's puke on the floor and it's just, it's it's a shop of horror and they don't really care. Because there's not much they can do, or... What's the alternative? You just have to... Give them a bigger bucket? They deal with this all day, every day. Taking taking drug addicts off the streets. And it was so bad. Oh, it was so bad. I didn't sleep for 32 days. (laughs) When you come off of heroin, you get insomnia... It is so, so authentic. You can't, you can't, you can't even pretend that you get a little bit here and there. You get insomniatic, for months, and the first 32 days, I remember there was not a single minute of sleep that I could catch or detect, not one. And on the 32nd day, I remember I was I was laying in my bed and I was actually reading the Book of Mormon, and I dozed off. And then I woke up and I realized I'd fallen asleep and I like threw a little celebration. I was like, I did it. And I told my celly, I was like, dude, I just fell asleep. Or Like I, I did, I fell asleep. And I looked up at the clock, it had been for like two minutes.
0: 32 days, That that's like <laughs> in, inhuman Yeah. or superhuman.
1: And at night when everybody's, you know, like most people are asleep or somebody, everybody's just in their cell suffering, 24 hours a day, you're staring at the cell wall, staring at the bottom of the bunk, listening to your celly fart and moan and, and the smells. I mean, 20, 24 hours a day without a break. And you lay there and you close your eyes and you try to force yourself to go to sleep and that doesn't help. You slow your breathing down and that doesn't help. You cannot sleep. It just doesn't happen. And yeah, yeah that's, that's quarantine that's that's when you first go to jail that's what drying out is called they dry you out and then they put you in population so i'm 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 kind of trying to wrap up the prison portion because i want to i want to get to the most important portion of this entire this entire interview and that's the message
0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on part two of Hopeless to Dopeless. Stay tuned next week for part three. Thank you again for listening to the Parish to Thought show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us.